This show is brought to you by the Deluxe Edition Network. Head over to the Den.show for other great podcasts. Yeah, there is some light in the old piece master yet. I think my dog Crab is the sourest natured dog that lives. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition, the show where we love to dig deep into classic pop culture. My name is Bill Sebald. Here with me, as always, Mr. Casey Shearer. How are you, Bill? Good. How are you? Guess who's back? Back again. I'll, we'll probably get like a YouTube strike just for using that little bit of an Eminem song. <laughs> <laughs> no, no Google money for us. It's, guess who's back, Casey? Wait, do you can wait before we announce today's guest? Do you consider yourself like Chevy Chase to be pitch perfect? No, I'm just talking about using because that's an Eminem song. Obviously, it's an Eminem song. I know you're a big Eminem fan. I just like, remember we posted something once. We posted we posted a uh, Beast of Burden song from the Rolling Stones as the like outro sound for the guest who's back today. And I posted it on YouTube. This is before we knew what the fuck we were doing. And it's like copyright strike. This this video is not eligible for any revenue. I'm like, what revenue? There's revenue in this thing? We can make right. money? I haven't seen any money. So it's like you can't make any money on this because of a copyright strike. So I saw that we had the option to to, to claim or uh, fight it. And they slapped it right down. I'm like, no. <laughs> no, you didn't pay for usage of the song. I was like, oh, I tried. You're telling me that you sound or that you think you sound exactly like Eminem in order for us to get pulled down. I think that algorithm is going to be like dead on. That's got to be Eminem. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't think it was good? It was perfect pitch. Mark Singer's our guest today. Mark Singer. Guess who's back? The Beastmaster is back. This was a great second interview. We, We had an amazing first interview. And I was like, yeah, will the second one be as good? It was better. So good, dude. So after we got finished last week, you know, we didn't hang up with the Beastmaster. You and I talked to Mark for another like half hour, 45 minutes and like unplugged our mics. And like, I was just like, tell me more, Mark. Please. <laughs> yeah, that was, I love that's happened a couple times. That's always fun when that happens. He's so great, man. Well, then it's like, should we keep the recorder going? And then we're like, no, he doesn't think we're recording it. And I don't want him to say something he doesn't, you know. But yeah, it's like sometimes the really good stuff comes out after we turn off the recording. Yeah. Yeah, this oh. was a great, great interview, man. Mark's so cool. You know, I don't. I hate to say this, but, you know, he's probably one of our coolest guests. Why do you hate to say that? I don't know. I mean, I I don't want anybody else to feel bad because we've had some pretty awesome guests, you know, in the past. But like, Mark Singer is fucking awesome, dude. And you notice he gets younger. I don't know how he's doing that. Like, I was the last time we were talking to him. I'm staring at him, going, "He's getting younger. I'm getting older. This isn't this isn't right." Yeah, he yeah, looked he good. Looked he sounded good. good. He's great. Yeah, man. Yeah, this was fun. So we won't take up any more of your time. We have a sponsor now, Bear Claw Kitchen. 
Go to bearclawkitchen.com. Use code DELUXE15 at checkout for 15% off of your entire order. They've got granola bars, granola snacks. They have uh, different kinds of honey. They have pancake mix that you can get. Stuff's really good. You're you're getting some uh, on the way, Bill. That's why I asked you for your address the other day. So you shall have some of that soon. Good friend. You always need my address. That's that's a sign of a good friend. Yep. (laughs) Any, Any more plugs there, buddy, before we get into the interview? No. Please buy some of this because I keep screwing us up with the copyright strikes. We're never going to get that Google money. If we're going to pay the hosting fees for our podcast, we need you to buy some. Bear Claw. Bye, Bear Claw. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Deluxe Edition, yet another pop culture podcast. Uh, every major podcast platform, YouTube, everywhere. Tell your friends. We need you to tell your friends. It's impossible to get through the deluge of podcasts out there. I mean, there are just so many. And damn it, we may not be the best one out there, but man, some are really bad. <laughs> really bad and it's like i listen to it, like they're just saying things we make mistakes once in a while we make mistakes i was listening to one the other day where they were talking about just putting information out. i was like all of this is wrong a hundred percent wrong and he's allowed to have that podcast so yes we we need word of mouth yeah and bill mentioned we have been wrong in the past and we're gonna do a fun episode where we we write all of our wrongs <laughs> Because our friends do tell us. Oh, yeah. It feels real good to know that you fucked up on your show. But you know what? Tell us tell us when we fuck up because that algorithm loves any comments. Trash us. Tell us we suck. Like that Debbie Dewana. Debbie. <laughs> Debbie. <laughs> you can tell us we suck all day, Debbie Dewana. It only helps our rankings. I keep, I'm taking this away from this great interview. Let's roll right. into it. Let's get into it. Here's Mark Singer. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for coming back to the show. We are so happy to have you. Hey, Bill, I'm glad to be here. Hi, Casey. How are you doing? Good, Mark. So good to see you, man. You look great. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, uh, It's uh, important in my business that I at least look human. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you pulled it off. You did good. You did good. You look human. Took a lot of work. What have you been doing in the last few? I I mean, we talked to you, what, a year ago? So, Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, um, I've been uh, I've been mostly writing and uh, and composing. Uh, the COVID uh, shutdown has uh, affected our industry uh, very much in the same way that it has other industries in the United States, and sort of flattened out for a lot of us. And so we've had to we've actually had to become creative. Oh wow! <laughs> well, that's not hard for you. You're already you're already creative. I appreciate it. I've been uh, I've been composing uh, on the piano and uh, and on the guitar. Uh, and I've been doing some writing. That's basically what I've been doing. What are you working on? What are you writing? Are you writing another stage show? I've been writing cowboy poetry. Did I did I mention that the last time we were talking? No, I don't think a, so. You know what cowboy poetry is? You know what that is? It's a it's the folk version of poetry, and it's written in a cowboy vernacular. I was raised in Texas, and I've uh, always been a Westerner. And so as a regionalist, uh, it's uh, kind of natural for me to pull on my Texas background uh, and to blend it with the West. And you write, uh, you write things that are, are characteristically in the vernacular. I've got one that I annoy people with around Christmas. 
It's too long to recite here, but I'll give you a flavor of it for the beginning, if that's okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. This is called a, a cowpoke's Christmas. Okay. And it starts out this way. I heard a story once about a babe born in a stall where goats was kept and cows and mules and chickens, I recall. His mam and pap was on the run, the way the story goes. Some outlaw band that run the land was killing folks in droves. Don't ask me why. I didn't get that part set in my mind. But like as not was land or gold or something of that kind that causes folks to turn real mean. Who'd else be my nice as pie? Causes some to use their guns and other folks to die. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You know what I mean? It tells us. Then you tell a story out of that. The cowpoke who tells the story begins to re- reveal more about himself and relives uh, in person a, a a Christmas story right before our eyes. And and uh, it's 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 good fun. That's cowboy poetry. So I write epic poems that have uh, have stories to them. You know. Yeah. Wow. There's there's something really. I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. It's attractive. There's something attractive about the way you speak, even in your movies. There's it's almost melodic and rhythmic in a way. Is, is that something you're trying to do or am I totally making this up? No, you're not making it up. And uh, in fact, uh, it's imperative that actors work on their voice. And any actor or actress who isn't assiduously working on their voice is missing the primary tool in actor's trade because that's our vocation is vocabulary. That's what we do is we tell stories. We use every syllable, every pause, every punctuation mark in order to convey character and uh, meaning. And, uh, and the vehicle for that is the voice, because the voice is the animated, tangible expression of the soul. And as humans, we get to focus that tangible expression using this thought process that we've been gifted with. This, this whole thing about voice, by the way, if, if this is not just deadly boring and among the weeds, is, uh, is something that um, uh, I shared with a, uh, a psychologist, uh, a, a very eminent psychologist, uh, uh, a German woman who's become a good friend of mine. And, and uh, she has taken this back into her practice as some fundamentally important for defining the self. And so I appreciate it that you that you mentioned the voice aspect, and I pass that along to all the people who might be watching this, uh, those who are aspiring to be actors, or even those that just want to make an impression in their daily lives because they feel they have things to express. The voice, the voice, the voice. Yeah. Your episode before, over 11,000 views for us, a lot of the people have said they cannot believe how much your voice has stayed the same after all these years. There are there are models for this that people can also uh, notice. I appreciate that. I it is after all a, a physical attribute. It's like lifting weights or running or swimming or something like that. You know, it's something that can be kept for a long time. Uh, I always admired Lee Marvin's voice. I always thought that his was the most grounded and the most centered. And as he got older and better at his work, his voice also, uh, his command of his voice got better and better and better. You know, we forget because we think that's exactly who the person is, but it's a, it's a variety of characters and a variety of roles, and the voice has to accommodate that. You've done voice acting work. How much have you done? You know, uh, not as much as I'd like to, and every time I have done it, I've enjoyed it enormously. I, I did uh, Duck Dodgers. I've done uh, Batman. 
Boy, I can't remember. I've done others as well, but I always enjoyed it. It's like doing radio. Everybody sits around in the room. You have a script in front of you. Everybody's got a music stand with a script on it. And you you act this uh, uh, radio play, essentially, in the room. So you're there with all your colleagues. And, and uh, in the case of uh, Duck Dodgers, you're there with people who are enacting uh, classic character voices that you used to watch uh, and enjoy in the, in the Saturday matinees that I used to attend in Texas. Is there enough money to do voice work? Could you just be a voice actor or do typically voice actors, you know, because there's so much animation, there's so much voice acting, whether it's a commercial or a, you know, a, a small cartoon show that my nephew watches. I mean, can you make a living as a voice actor? Oh, sure. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. People are quite successful as that, uh, as voice actors. And, uh, and whole, uh, a friend of mine uh, has an entire studio uh, set up in his own home. Um, up in a in a faraway room in a faraway land where the kitties can't get at him, uh, and he and he does quite well, specifically announcing for films and so forth. And uh, that's just one area, one niche. But acting from show to show as as guest artists, and also the aim of any voice actor is to is to get on a successful series. I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I remember from our first interview, I was fascinated because I, I knew you from the film world. I knew you from everything I loved growing up and, and to learn about your stage work and, you know, kind of just talking about voice and understanding how important voice is to, you know, the character and to the story. Do you think because you do a lot of stage work, do you think that was a benefit to movies or are the world, the universe is just so different that they're just totally different skill sets? Oh, boy. <laughs> This is it's like uh, talking now. You've you've triggered that monomaniac in me. I could go on about this for days and days and days. I think the creation I'm uh, happiest with personally in my whole life is a, a short book of a hundred pages long called "The System: How to Act Shakespeare," because it's my contention that everybody who wants to be an actor or a writer or a producer or a director should make a close study of Shakespeare and how to perform Shakespeare. And that if you can act Shakespeare, you can act anything. But if you start out acting something else, if you start out in what's in what's I think miscalled these days, the, the method, that inner exploration, what do I feel like? What, who am I? What do I do? And you bend every role through yourself you're handicapped in a sense. You can be extraordinarily successful, heroically successful. But in Shakespeare, you bend yourself through the character. You bend yourself through Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is the greatest technician and is the uh, greatest playwright in the history of mankind since the ancient Greeks. There were the ancient Greeks, then there was nobody, then there was Shakespeare, and now everybody else is a pale comparison, no matter how wonderful and incredible they are. And I give them props. They can, every writer, uh, Neil Simon, uh, Miller, uh, Pinter, you name it, these Tennessee Williams, these are great, 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 brilliant authors. But they would acknowledge that there's only one Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is, presents the foundational structure for all acting and the, the mistake that all that inner work is absent from the technique of Shakespeare is a real mistake. Shakespeare incorporated that 400 years before it was ever thought of. I think that uh, the ultimate example of that is Portia's in the Merchant of Portia's speech, the quality of mercy is not strained. 
is that any actor or actress who might be watching this, who wants to synthesize the modern and the classic in a single speech, male or female, should make a close study of uh, performing the quality of mercy, not as an aria, which is how it usually is presented. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him. (laughs) Pardon me, I I fell asleep in the middle. But um, if you really use that as a serious part of a scene where you're turning to somebody and telling somebody something, it is the epitome of what is called modern acting. And Shakespeare did it 400 years ago. So Shakespeare is the way to go. All right, candid question. Right. Watching movies today, I don't get the impression that a lot of people are trained the way you are. (laughs) Many are, sure, but a lot of them aren't and they're making movies. How do people who are trained in the arts who really get it like you, do you have any sort of negative look at some of the way that that other people are, are, are acting in Hollywood or even the whole Hollywood system that's allowing anybody to be an actor? It would be unwise politically for me to say anything against Hollywood, number one. But let's be let's be honest about that. But also, I don't mean this as a denigration of any great acting that's on the on the screen now. Uh, what I do, what does concern me, and I also I, I think kicking Hollywood in the shins is uh, is is an easy target. Uh, Hollywood uh, produces and has produced historically the greatest entertainment the world has ever known and continues to do so. So uh, all my respect and all my kudos to, to Hollywood and those who are able to, to continue it and, and make a place in his, history for themselves and continue its own history. But I despair about the devaluation of theater. And uh, that finds expression in my passion, uh, almost compulsion for Shakespeare. Uh, and for the uh, and for the correct uh, methodology for interpreting Shakespeare, which is the Stanislavski method, which is the true original method, which was derived from classical theater. The linchpin of classical theater being, guess what? Shakespeare. White for it. Shakespeare. 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 Right. You know, so <laughs> that's wonderful. Uh, that's don't great. Get how do you how do you learn accents like that? Is it just something that naturally comes to you? Your brain is just wired to be able to pick it up and, and mimic, or do you sit and practice even things like your accent there? Uh, I, I'm so I sort of missed the beginning of the how do I how do I do what how do I no problem I'll I, ask it again so we can have a clean cut. So oh, it doesn't, I don't I don't matter. I'm, listen, I'm uh, I'm as wandering and stuttering an imbecile as you'll ever have on your show. So it doesn't it doesn't matter that I ask you what I can't even figure out how to use my printer. Go ahead. So tell me. <laughs> So tell, so tell me, I'm, I'm happy to have all this, have all this in. I like it for warts and all. Good. All right. We'll leave it all in B-roll. This is the B-roll episode. Everything. Raw, comes Bill, raw. Remember you wanted it raw. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. So my question was like, you just did a really great British accent there. Is that something you do you have to practice it? Do you do, do actors sit and practice and practice and walk around the house and practice? Do they get dialect coaches? How do you get good at doing an accent that's believable? Yeah, it's it it is it is something that you practice, but it's but it's also the love of the art, you know. If you uh, or the craft, let me say it's a craft. I think of acting as a craft. It produces art sometimes as a byproduct, but what acting is is a craft, and it's taught as a mystery. All that, oh, how will I get there? Remembering when my little dog died when I was three years old, and how Papa said, "What is that? What is that? 
How does that have to do with the play? If you say the word love, even just saying it as I just did, which is as an objective four-letter word love, it produces as a byproduct an emotional state of love. It might be very faint, but it produces that vibration. Consequently, if I say the word hate, it produces just in the tonality, it produces a different effect in me, and it does in you hearing it. I could see you, you know, give a kind of a, yeah, I get that, as opposed to the love thing. We all go, oh, yeah, yeah, love, I get that, see? And so acting is a craft. It's the understanding and the trusting of the words and imbuing the words with the author's intent and knowing that that will work correctly on us to produce that intent that that effect on the audience, which is who we're really playing for. And people get very caught up in this, you see, and they play a scene with one another and they are really in there in that scene. And they're wondering, you know, how do I, how do I really become this character? Well, you don't, you don't become that character. You become really good at being that character at doing, at doing that character but not at being that character. Otherwise, you if you played a murderer, you the old the old saw is you'd get a gun and run out and you know figure out what that's like. You know. Yeah. 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 I I, oh, accents. We start on accents. Oh yeah. 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 So if you really love the business, if you really love the business, you see wonderful actors and actresses, and you you mimic them. You just say that's fantastic, and you just you just love that. You just love that. I do that all the time. I watch commercials and see somebody on on, a, on television do a single line in a commercial. And I go, how did he do that? That was good. Yeah. Well, what would you listen for? What would yeah, be, be good about it? Well, you look for something that is a, something that makes you believe it's spontaneous. That is so flawlessly reproduced by that actor at that moment that you completely believe that the moment is real and unreplicable, irreplicable, unreplicable, that you can't replicate it. There's a commercial playing right now uh, where people are playing golf. And uh, one of the two people says, well, who's counting? And the other fellow says, that's the whole point of golf, he says. And the way he reads that line is just, I, 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 I go, and then here it comes. And I go, look at that. Look at that. That's brilliant. And that guy who does that, he's in charge of that. That didn't just happen. That wasn't magic. It didn't just come over him like an inspiration. He made that happen. And he made us look like, he made us feel that it was just spontaneous. That's wonderful acting. Yeah, it's an art to me. It's an art form. I've always thought of it as an art form as a kid. And and I've met people who said, oh, they're just reading scripts. It's not an art form. It is completely an art form for all the reasons that you just described. It's psychological. It's it's just, it's art. It's art. That's why I express it as craft that produces art. Because um, Salvador Dali had a room in his house that was red velvet, all red velvet, and it had pink furniture in it. And from one, and I, I saw this, uh, I saw an interview with him, and they said the interviewer said, "This is the Marilyn Monroe room, is that correct?" And he said, "Yes." They said, "Well, I don't quite, I don't quite get it, or maybe our viewers wouldn't quite get it." Well, they moved the camera back to a certain perspective. And all that furniture came together as a sculpture of Marilyn Monroe nude. 
that's a craft that results in art. Yeah, that's clever. When I see that stuff, it's like optical illusion art. That's cool stuff. Yeah. What do you think about the way that Hollywood is going now? And, And let me preface this with with where my head's at. I'm seeing a lot of the young generation, the 20 somethings and younger, they seem to be the internet generation to me. Now I came up with the internet. Okay. It was brand new in the nineties when I was just tinkering, but it seems like this last decade, the internet became the entertainment destination, you know, in regards to film TV, because YouTube is huge. Twitch is huge. My son would rather watch somebody play a video game all day than, you know, go like me. Like I, I lived in the movies. They were the world to me because they showed me things I never saw before. Now they're seeing all that in video games. Do you worry with the way the pandemic has shut down some, you know, some, some productions and, and everybody's sort of filming things on their own that maybe Hollywood as we know it is going away. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I'm, I think uh, I share uh, concern about the future of Hollywood, as does every other serious member of our community. Again, listen, everything I do is tied to Shakespeare. I'm sorry about this, but that, but it is. In the 1930s and 40s, I would say go back to the 20s, but 30s and 40s, certainly, and into the early 50s, films were constructed around stories. And uh, the stories had classical beginning, middles, and ends. They didn't deal as forthrightly as films are able to deal with uh, subject matter and, and modes of expression as films are able to, to do now. But what they did have that was an enormous uh, benefit to society and to culture was a formal structure. And that formal structure works on your subconscious, on the subconscious level, to teach and, uh, a, a kind of formality to the thought process that somebody telling a story, whether you're sitting across a dinner table with somebody or not, uh, or, or on the phone, or as we're doing right now, that the story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a progression. And that the same thing begins to imbue your thought process with the same kind of organizational skill to be able to organize a thought to say, if this is true, and this then develops from it, what is the logical conclusion to this? And therefore, uh, a certain standard of critical thinking is enhanced by the formality of older storytelling styles, which then translates back again to Shakespeare and the structural style uh, that he was able to master. So I applaud any form of of creative endeavor. Uh, Long may it wave. I know there are different value systems at work in the game world as there are in the film world and uh, those that are those games that are that are comprised of of the better whatever what however you judge that the the better qualities those are the ones that will always rise like cream to the top no matter how much money is put be, put behind their production or not so yeah i i i am concerned with the film industry becoming too much reflective of the game world uh, so that films become more like a ride than uh, than an than an unfolding emotional and intellectual experience, uh, but I I remain optimistic. You know, again, as it's like I'm I'm completely supportive of the effort for where it goes. The one thing um, I, I thought this a little bit lately, 
to the point where I'm starting to turn my nose at CGI. Sometimes I'm looking at CGI and it's like you're giving everything away. There's no theater of the mind at all. When you go back to something like Beastmaster, you know, you couldn't make some of the things bigger than you did. And and I like that. I like the practical effects. It puts you in a place that feels real, but you can still use your imagination to enhance some of the fantasy. So do you think what do you think about like CGI in movies? I've had to participate in some CGI uh, moments in uh, in more recent years as CGI has become more prominent and also more sophisticated. Uh, a story can get lost in CGI and uh, uh, young filmmakers who have not lived long enough, uh, nor have they come from experiences that are uh, challenging enough uh, physically, uh, young filmmakers can, can, can let CGI run away with them. I guess it's I guess it's inevitable that all of us will say the sentence that I'm about to say, which is back in the day, back in the day, you actually had to do the things on screen. And my the example that I give in this regard is uh, is the old John Wayne films. Those guys came to work, got on horses that weighed twelve hundred pounds and roared off across the, the landscape, up hills and down dales and over rocks and through cactuses and this and this and that and this and that. They did uh, rescue mounts and their horses reared and kicked and they had their horses being part of the scene and carrying on a sort of emotional background to what they were doing. And none of that was a stunt. They fought, they fell over furniture, they fell downstairs, they jumped out of the second story into wagons and onto horses. And that wasn't a stunt to them. That's just what they did. That's what they brought to the work. And that was what made the work so amazing. Anybody that's seen John Wayne stick his spurred boot into the stirrup of his horse in Stagecoach as he contemplates making an escape, anybody sees the grace of that as he, as he then leaps that horse over a two or three rail fence and pulls it to a halt all within the space of a screen, is watching a ballet of the most powerful components and not done as something that we would call stunt. That's just John Wayne saying, and then I do this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got a few questions for you about the early days going back into when you got into Hollywood. Hopefully you remember those days. I can't remember last week, so hopefully you have a better. I was gonna, you beat me to the punch. I'm, I'm lucky to remember if I'm in the right room. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I share that. Uh, same. So to me, my life has always been, it's who you know. It, it's networking. It, it's people help you get opportunities. When you were, I, I believe if I remember right, you were a stage actor first. So somebody must have helped you into the Hollywood machine. Is that right? How did you get in? You know, it's, I'm, uh, I'm like uh, Blanche Dubois in the uh, a Streetcar Named Desire, which is I've relied on the kindness of strangers. I was a dedicated actor from the moment uh, in high school that I discovered that acting was what I was going to do. And from that moment on, I worked at improving my skill set because I was just absolutely that crazy about the idea of being an actor. I started on in Shakespeare, by the way. And I think there's, there's something of the excitement of that that you see that people along the way, your superiors, your elders, they spot that in a young person. They see the young boxer who's got the special skills and the talents and the real drive to accomplish something more. Or the, uh, or the swimmer 
that just can't pull themselves up. Tiger Woods' dad. Tiger Woods said he would take his dad out to the driving range, just wouldn't stop. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. And so I think there's a certain attractiveness to that in, in the older generation. There is with me. I have uh, protégés now that, that, uh, uh, that I coach. Uh, I guess that would be the way to say it. But I came into town because people were patient with me. And they, they themselves were dedicated to the theater or to film in such a way as they overlooked my gaucheness and my, my crassness, my youthful indiscretions, and uh, gave me a second chance. Not that, I mean, I could, I could name names, uh, but that begins to sound like, the, uh, like those awards shows where, where people are saying names that we've never heard of. Uh, but all along the way in theater, that was, that was what saved me, was that my contribution uh, somehow outweighed my indiscretions and my indiscretions were tolerated because of my contributions. But as I came into Los Angeles on the heels of uh, the Taming of the Shrew um, uh, at the American Conservatory Theater, and I was uh, given the um, Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle Award for my performance as Petruchio on that. And, and, and uh, uh, so I can't say that that was done by myself. That was done. That was all on the patience of other people and on the capitalization of an industry that said that's somebody that we can use. And so uh, I think that's been a strong component of how I've managed to survive and, and continue in this unforgiving and yet quite appreciative <laughs> industry. <laughs> Has there been anyone that maybe would cite you and say, uh, you know, Mark's responsible for my entrance in or, or getting me really to, to fall in love with Hollywood? Wow. I, I, I tell you, there are there are there are occasionally people. Well, you know, you know, it's you know that I you know that it's a tough story for me to tell when I begin examining the hem of my shirt. Um, uh, um, yes, I've had I've had many actors uh, tell me many young actors tell me that they. Uh, that I was influential in their in their choice to become actors, and I, if this isn't too vainglorious, I I tell you I tell you my my uh, the the one that impresses me the most is I was standing outside of a, a theater, as a matter of fact, one evening out in the breezeway. I think in inter oh it must have been after the play after the play when people were waiting for the actors to come out. I was standing in a group of people and there are people milling around after the show. And I heard these footsteps. I heard this voice calling out, Mark Singer, Mark Singer. And I was, oh, my God, they've caught up with me at last, you know, whatever it is. I I was, oh, my God. And I hear these footsteps. I hear Mark Singer, Mark Singer. And Tom Hanks rushes up to me and he grabs me by the shoulders and yells at the top of his voice. You're the reason I became an actor, he says. I saw you in The Taming of the Shrew live uh, in San Francisco. He said, and that evening I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an actor. And uh, I, I have to say, I, I, I'm, I'm rarely speechless, but that struck me dumb. And uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to have repeated it. But, <laughs> but oh, uh, don't you, be yeah, don't be embarrassed. That's beautiful. I mean, you you changed that man's life. That's great. It, it, it's, it, it, it answers that question. It refers back to that question. Is there anybody to whom you owe special 
credit. I want to pay special credit for uh, your achievements or any of that sort of stuff. Hey, you have to go away. My dog wants to be fed. I know how he feels. Uh, that um, That's how that works. It works like that, is that we all contribute to one another. And so here he is in due time coming and making a big fuss over me. And it, it makes me feel better about myself. That's great. That's really yeah. cool. What do you Very see cool. when, when you're watching cinema now or even stage? What are actors doing today that you think is wrong? What should actors be doing better today? Well, uh, let me go get my encyclopedia of the mistakes that Mark Singer has made in his career. And I'll, I'll, start, <laughs> I'll start at the A's and we'll just turn the pages and reminisce, shall we? Uh, <laughs> the things that uh, I think most actors do wrong, even the young, talented ones who are destined to have bigger and better careers and, and who will in time uh, be indulged and they will themselves grow because they're serious about it. But the thing that they, the thing that people, uh, I think in general in this industry, performers don't do the biggest mistake they make is they don't work hard enough. And I, I don't mean on a script. I don't mean when somebody hands you a script and and you say, Oh, huh, this is good. Yeah. Oh, Oh, darling, darling. I've always loved you. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, they don't work every day on their acting. I mean, they don't work every day the way a committed dancer works on their dancing or a rodeo cowboy works on his roping and his riding and on his timing and on it or, or her timing and whatever it is, you know. And this is why I'm always going back to Shakespeare is because it doesn't matter how many and, and you know, boy, I'll go to hell for this. How many, how many uh, Tennessee Williams and Arthur Millers is you, you do, how many uh, wonderful speeches of theirs that you do, it's not the same as Shakespeare. Shakespeare demands every ounce of energy you've got and teaches you at the same time. It increases your IQ. It actually increases your IQ. This, unfortunately, is the level that I've achieved, but it's, it's, uh, it, is, it will actually increase your IQ and hopefully greater than this. But, there, but, uh, but it really will. It really will. And it will teach you about acting. And again, I go back to that Portia speech, the quality of mercy is not strength. Uh, and uh, I let people work on that. Let them try that and they'll see. Because it's a speech. It's a speech. Yeah, can, I, can I take a, another moment about this Shakespeare thing? Yeah. Absolutely. Here's here's a mistake that young actors make when they're when they're trying out for stage companies like uh, repertory theaters and things like that. Young males, yeah. young males generally uh, are drawn toward a single speech, which is uh, "Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones. So let it be with Caesar." And blah 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 blah. And the scene goes on, and the, the speech goes on. And the young actor looks at this and says, this is a good speech for me. You know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil men do lives after them. The good is on you know. And then at the end, I, I can even cry in the end. You know, this is this will be very effective. Show all my acting skills. But in fact, it's a terrible speech to do for an audition. Because it's part of a long scene in which this speech is only one section of an oratory that he delivers. And doing this one section is, it's like uh, showing somebody that you're a great swimmer by uh, floating on your back. It's kind of like, well, where's the rest of the swimming? It's not in this part. 
Whereas the quality of mercy, there's no histrionics in it. The way I, the way you can read it, there's no histrionics in it, but it focuses and brings together every, it demands from you every skill as a personality underlying the character and as the character that your personality is exemplif- is forced to exemplify. And so that's a, that's a, a kind of a tip, I guess, for people. And that's why I say that actors don't really work assiduously and hard enough every day. I work on my acting every day. I work on Shakespeare every day. I work on my voice every day. I work on uh, writing and, and uh, telling stories either on paper or verbally every day. It's a calling. Acting should be looked upon as a calling and as a, as a cultural enhancement. And as such, you have to be dedicated. So, anyway, God, am I pompous? I love that. I love what I'm pompous. <laughs> nothing pompous. Nothing pompous. Yeah, if, I, if only I had a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just like everything else. If practice makes perfect, right? That's right. You know, I, do you, did you, did you ever see a baseball player? I, I saw I saw a baseball player in a documentary, and he went to the bat. He went to the bat factory of the Louisville Sluggers, I guess, and he tried a hundred bats. Swung them, swung them, took a look at them, weighed them, put them back, put them back. Took another one, swung it, and swung it, and to find the kind of bat that he needed. He didn't take a day off and go have an ice cream. You know, he was he was working. I'm not an actor. I'm a musician. So I study musicians as well. And some of my favorite guitar players have taken breaks. They take a year off or two years off and they'll say they go back. Frank Zappa comes to mind. You know, there'll be times where he doesn't touch guitar and he comes back and he's a little bit different. You've never taken time off to sort of think through and, and that, that it's not the same case with you then. Yeah. Actors, uh, actors get a lot of time off. Actors, uh, they say, thank you. Next. Uh, and so actors get a lot of time off. We get to, we get to, we get to meet a lot of people who tell us take a little more time off. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, so it's a recurring thing with us. You were talking about being a musician. Uh, this, uh, sorry, back to Shakespeare again, is that um, if you think of uh, music theory, that's what Shakespeare is, is that music is he's founded on music theory. If you think of a great composer, contemporary composer, let's say like Danny Elfman. There's a guy who obviously understands everything about music theory that there is to know. And so he produces extraordinary scores, whereas somebody who's just sort of getting along as best they can on their their personality and some catchy phrases and tunes is going to be limited to that. And that's the point I keep trying to make is that there's a a bigger, broader world out there. And there is actually a mechanism for attaining it and achieving it, or at least trying. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Going back to the, uh, the earlier days of Hollywood, would you say, and I'm going to ask this question because, you know, even as we've been doing this show and talking to people about Hollywood, about their careers, about, you know, things that have happened. And then you get the stories like the Weinstein stories. and, And there's a lot of dark parts of Hollywood. When you got in, would you say there was a moral industry or was it maybe a little bit corrupt? And I know you don't want to badmouth Hollywood, but you know, how was it as an industry? Well, when I was just a young fellow, <laughs> back in the past, don't tell anybody, there was outlaws running the streets. 
Yeah, there was a, yeah, it was a dark and dangerous place. People were shang, they shanghaied a fellow. Uh, Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood has always been for me a very romantic place. I, I tell the story of my wife and I were acting in a uh, in the San Diego National Shakespeare Festival, and uh, it was my first full professional year out of university. No, uh, no net flying without a net. We owned a, a Volkswagen, uh, a dog, a vacuum cleaner and a suitcase. And that's what we had. And uh, we came down to San Diego as a team and we were working on the stage at, National, at the uh, National Shakespeare Festival at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. We got an invitation to come up to Los Angeles to see the screening of the director that we had become acquainted with. He was doing a film. And we were driving up toward Los Angeles and the sign over the freeway said, Hollywood, next three exits. And I, as God is my witness, I turned to my wife and said, there's an actual Hollywood. I said, there's a, there is, look, there's Hollywood. We're going to Hollywood. I didn't know that there actually was a Hollywood. I thought to me, Hollywood was like an idea, a concept, like the Wizard of Oz, you know? And she, well, she, she was distressed. She married, but I, uh, Hollywood has always been a romantic place for me. So the idea that there was skullduggery going on and that people were leading nefarious lives, skirting the edges of morality, only made Hollywood that much more attractive to me because it's an enormously... When I first got here, I thought it was a completely characterless town, and that's not so. It has great romance and great history in it, and uh, it awes me sometimes to imagine that I'm... Uh, as John Candy uh, put it in uh, Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, uh, a twig on the shoulders of a mighty stream. You know, that's good. I just saw that movie the other day. I can't believe you just brought that up. What a great movie that was. It isn't, a, isn't synchronicity something amazing? I mean, you just saw it and I bring it up because there's no reason that would have happened. That's just, here we are. We're in the groove, baby. We're in the groove. I love it. Yeah. I want to bring up a movie that I loved as a kid. And we didn't talk about it last time, Dead Space. So you were in that movie. Do you remember it? Yeah, sure. I remember I remember uh, different parts. Yes, yes, yes. Roger Corman was a lot of fun. And and, and his movies were, were typically low budget and a little bit rough. So did you have any qualms about taking a Roger Corman movie? Uh, no. Uh, the most important thing to me was that I was, I was learning two things. Do the things that enhance the kind of filmmaking you know best and that and that you enjoy most those were the those were the two principles and so it didn't matter to me from whence the film came i just i looked at it and said oh i like this this is nice watchers 2 was a film that i did at corman studios which was about a a dog that co- could communicate and uh, i really enjoyed making that film the first my very first shot sort of like the beastmaster my very first shot in uh, watchers 2 was to come hurtling out of a great big kind of sewer opening into a tub, into a, like a standing swimming pool full of goo and, and sewage. And that was my opening shot. Okay, action. And there we are. Oh, look, we're making movies. And uh, in uh, Dead Space, I remember uh, we were just about to go to lunch in a scene 
and I and uh, some monster was attacking me. And I said, I said to the director, I said, we 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 need we need to do something much more active in this. And he's and and uh, he said he was a young guy, and he said, yeah, well, okay, well, uh, like what, like what? And all the crew had stopped, and all the rest of the cast, because everybody wanted to go have lunch. And I said, no, 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 we got got to do some more with this scene when we come back. He said, what, what, what? And I said, well, like this, I said, and there was a long board table uh, with cups and glasses and papers and things set up and chairs. And I said, I said, like this, I said, and I took a running jump and I threw myself the length and across the table and crap went everywhere. <laughs> like that. And I ended up off the table over in the corner by a file cabinet, which tipped over on me. And I said, like, like that, like that, you know, like that. And everybody went, Oh, that's what we're doing after lunch. We're doing, we're doing, we're doing that. So uh, uh, the Corman Studios were were a good place for for uh, for self expression and for excitement. And uh, he was very generous to me. I must say, he was always very sweet and, and very generous to me. And I I, I, I appreciated greatly that. I heard, uh, as a matter of fact, David Carradine uh, when uh, Roger got his uh, star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame uh, that uh, uh, David said. Um, that for him, uh, his appreciation for, uh, for Roger Corman would would extend uh, always because there were many times when, as he put it, that Roger saved the ranch. So he provided a lot of work for for people and a lot of income too. In yeah. His yeah, those movies now, admittedly, you know, we'll go back to my son again. If he would watch, if he would watch this movie, he would say, "This doesn't look big. This doesn't look." But to us back then, it was awesome. It was awesome. But has there ever been a movie that you, you filmed it, you go to watch it and you go, Oh shit, this isn't good. This does, this did not work out the way I thought it would. Oh, uh, I've, I've met, I've uh, participated in some movies in which everybody else seeing my performance has said that, uh, especially when you're learning the business, you don't always hit a home run. Uh, I would say that, uh, uh, most of the times that I've seen those kind of films, I have to shoulder my own responsibility uh, because when it all comes down to really is the the quality of what you bring to it. It can be butchered in the editing. It can be, uh, and I've had that happen. It, it can be the filmmakers themselves uh, back behind the camera can make uh, certain strategic mistakes uh, which uh, they don't seem to be able to correct at the time, even if they're alerted to it. And, you know, they're my, they're my own weaknesses, too, that I have to uh, take responsibility for. What, what usually happens in films like that is that so much is happening when you're making a film. It all goes, it all goes like this really quickly because time is of the essence and time is money. And we only have this park until dusk and then everybody has to get out, whether we're through filming or not. We have to leave and we'll never get this park again. So you have to be there and do this kind of stuff. And I think my greatest regret in those instances is not having been able to think quick enough to say to the director, whatever it is that needs to be said to put my performance into focus or to get the correct kind of performance uh, focus on the performance that needs to take uh, that needs to take a shift at this at this particular instant. And and if you miss enough of those shifts, uh, a film can just flatten out and your own work can become flattened by it. This is why I've always been a union man and will always be a union man is because there are uh, certain skill sets and requirements that union work demands. 
And uh, while I, I'm, I'm caught because I, 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 again, I'm very supportive of anybody that wants to make films, but I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not much in favor of right-to-work states. I'm a union man. I'm a union man. I got to think, I mean, even Casey and I, we're kind of learning how to do this podcast thing in his career. I mean, we, we have artistic differences. We battle some editing decisions, but we do it in a fun way, right? I'll win some, he'll win some. I'm fascinated by when you're putting together a movie, you have a director, you have a producer, you have an editor, you have actors, you have all these creative people, heavily creative people just coming in. I don't know how anybody gets anything done. <laughs> well, it's again, oh boy, it, it, what you're talking is architecture. And a great deal of respect needs to be paid to architecture, how a company is structured, because there are certain hierarchies that have been established traditionally. And those hierarchies are established over time because that's what works best. You operate, you take care of this business and this person will take care of that business. And then this person will take care of this business. And this person will take care of that business. And they'll all come together and we'll have a film. There has to be communication between all those different levels and hopefully good communication. But architecture is very important in the hierarchy. And then going back to Shakespeare again, architecture is extremely important in how the contributions of each person is respected and, and valued. Uh, the leading character, by the way, just by definition, has a special responsibility. And that is not be all me because I'm the leading character, but to lead the company and to set an example of how we move forward coherently and cohesively. And anybody that does not support that architecture or anybody at the top or any ranking in between who is not worthy of that begins to make the pyramid begin to crumble. And then, you know, then you, then you end up with uh, a structure that isn't as, uh, as sound as it other would, otherwise would be. So um, I, I, that's why, again, sorry, I'm, listen, I, I, you know, shoot, maybe kill again, but, uh, uh, that's why I go. That's why I go back to to Shakespeare. Is is because it teaches every actor by the roles the kind of architect architecture of scripts. So you can take that template and you can apply it to every script you read from then on. Whether it's a screenplay or whether it's a contemporary play, doesn't matter because Shakespeare will have taught you how to how a script works. Yeah, I, I see no problem going back to Shakespeare. It's one of the most interesting things about our first interview. I, I never think that much outside because I'm an 80s kid. You know, the world was all Star Wars to me, to, to, you know, so when to, to learn what really is behind the stuff that built what I grew up on. It's fascinating. If you don't mind, before we move to uh, our, our questions from our from our audience, I got a couple of questions that I've never really, truly known the answers for. Just Hollywood general questions. Maybe you could maybe you could help me. I know every actor gets a manager. There's a, there's a pig in the background. Just walking. yeah, that that's my little schnauzer who was just bothering me. I'm like, go away! I'm doing an interview, but she's like, it's dinner time. I thought, but, I, I thought you'd let you'd let one of the barnyard animals in for a moment. Yeah, no, no. she looks what? like a, a little bear, but she is not a. a she's okay. I promise she's a dog. Okay. So when you're when you're working in Hollywood, I know everybody has a manager. What exactly is the manager? What does the manager do? 
that what is the manager needed for that you can't do yourself? The manager can carve off a chunk of your salary that you otherwise would be spending. Uh, but that's a, that's an easy joke. That's a facile joke, and it's not fair. One doesn't need an entourage, but what one does need are intermediaries. And so just as the agent stands between the production company and the actor, the manager stands as a bridge from the actor to the agent and from the actor to the rest of the industry. So that while the agent is performing what seems to be a mirror task to the manager, the manager is specifically focused on the social aspects of the community. And with his ear to the ground or her ear to the ground in a different way than the agent has uh, an ear to the ground. It's hard. It's some of these distinctions are a bit obtuse, but no producer and no director wants an actor calling them all the time and saying, what about this? And what about that? Well, the same thing is true for an agent. If I'm an agent and I have, let's say 50 clients, and I have 50 clients, I don't necessarily want seven of them or 20 of them or 13 of them or however many of them calling me all the time saying, what did you do for me today? But a manager, that's his job. What have you done for Mark today? See? And so my agent can get angry at my manager, but I got nothing to do with that. I'm, I'm back here, you know, doing the things I do to keep myself ready and prepared, or maybe I'm working on another script or doing something else or making business connections or, or just getting a good tan, you know what I mean? Whatever it is, whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So uh, a manager is a, is a, is a, it's a kind of an art form in itself because he skates in a very, a very restricted lane or she, but you know, and has to, has to touch bases a, a lot of ways that way. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for explaining it that way, because my next question was going to be, what's an agent and what does an agent do and how is it different? So you, you totally explained that yeah. there's words I hear, like, you know, an actor gets scale or an, an actor gets points on the back end. You know, this is all about payment for doing the work. What is, what is scale? What is, what is points? What are options? What are these terms that I hear about and don't know what they, what they mean? <laughs> I know it's very hard. It's all very arcane. Scale is the lowest allowable salary that the union allows you, an actor to be paid. So given different categories of films, whether it's a, an A movie, which is a big budget movie, or a B movie, which is not quite so big a budget, or a C or a D or an F or a G or an R or whatever that is, there are different scale. There's a different scale at which an actor can be paid for each day's work or for how many hours of the day, probably at, at some, at some point. And also with that comes certain obligations for your comfort and sustenance that the company must provide scale plus denotes an actor who has risen above scale. And so Scale plus 10% pays the agent's fees or scale plus 60% if that's whatever the actor is able, or then you just, you, you don't work for scale anymore. You work for a negotiated price. That scale. What was the other one? The back end. 
uh, the back end <laughs> boy. points and, and, and things like that on points. the back end. I always points. hear. Yeah. Points points. Uh, that's deferred money. So let's say that I make a film and I'm paid a thousand dollars to pay to, to work in the film. Well, somebody says, well, you don't work for a thousand dollars. You say, no, no, I don't work for a thousand dollars, but they're giving me four points on the back end of the film. And those four points can be either 4% of the net or 4% of the gross of what the film makes. And it can be, and if it's uh, 4% of the net, the net always has big holes in it and all your money swims through the net. And uh, if it's part of the gross, then it's on record and, uh, and you get money. <laughs> uh, the famous, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's legendary in this, uh, in this industry of the creative bookkeeping that goes into actors who have owned their own shows and never seen a penny from them other than their salary, because all of the creative bookkeeping that goes on backstage and the company turns them up eventually and says, geez, you know, we just didn't make any money off this thing. It's been running for a year. What are you talking about? Sorry, you didn't make it money. Well, yeah. And probably to fight that is going to cost you more, and they'll probably hang it up and maybe some fights just aren't worth having. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it can be, it can be a ruthless business, but, uh, but uh, the, the ruthlessness of it, ruthlessness of it is also one of its strange attractions. I've sat with uh, some of my friends on the set of their series uh, uh, just dropping by to visit and heard some horrendous tale terrible things that have happened to people in the production company. They've had terrible bouts of terrible things, isn't it? And had everybody look at each other and go, my God, <laughs> because that's life. And that's what we all live in this industry. Yeah. We all do. Yeah. We were talking at the beginning when we were, when we were first uh, saying hello today, we were talking about printers and why, and how it is that, Printers are the bane of our existence. While I was talking to you, I was printing up something, right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, so when we took a break just now, you to take care of your pet and I to take care of mine. This is, this is what my printer handed me. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what it was printing all that time. That's bloody. Is it like? Huh? Is it blank? No, no, no. It's just it. It had a paper jam, and oh. so all the papers are out of sequence, and they're all folded and crumpled. And I'm going to have to sort through them, uh, like putting together a world atlas by hand. Oh. Yeah. yeah, you sound like you're like me. It's like I could easily print it again, waste it, but I won't feel right doing that. So I'm going to go through each one and try to re-put it, put it together like a puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we got a few fan questions. Why don't we jump into the fan questions? Mark, thanks so much for spending your day with us. We really appreciate it. Like I said before in the interview, we got so many, uh, so much good feedback. And uh, we'll get right into the fan questions now. Oh, I appreciate uh, it. I always like being with you. I, and I thank you for the, uh, for the invitation back. I appreciate it. So a question that we got a lot of, and uh, Bill and I already know the answer to this because you, we just all took a short break. Does the beast master have any animals of his own? Yeah. Meagerton, come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Come up. up. Hey, come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Come on. Come on. Yes. Yes. The Meagerton. 
<laughs> Minkerton. Minkerton. Hey, look. Oh, oh, I think my dog Crab is the sourest natured dog that lives. Beautiful, beautiful. We, we've been on stage together, actually. He's he's feeling. I think he actually is feeling shy that he, that he's on camera because this is not his usual response. Usually, he bites me. There. He's got stage fright. Yeah, isn't that weird? No, we really did. He came on stage with me once. There's a speech in Shakespeare uh, where this uh, old guy comes out and says, I think my dog crab be the sourest natured dog that lives. My mother weeping, my father wailing, my sister crying, the cat howling, the whole house in a great perplexity. You know, and, and, and he's here he is down below. He was a little puppy and he was barking at me and snapping at me all the way. And uh, the audience went nuts. We had a good time. Very cool. All right. Sarah McManus. This is a fun one here for you. She wants to know, why do I still have dreams about the Beastmaster and joining him on his adventures? What have you done to me? (laughs) Uh, I appreciate that. Thanks very much. You know, the Beastmaster was, uh, I think, one of the reasons you may have that recurring nightmare dream, sorry, uh, is, is that the Beastmaster was really made with great sincerity. I really did have a strong emotional bond with uh, the Tiger Roo. I really was transported, and I'm not even kidding you about this. I really was transported by the eagle uh, that I held on my, on my arm. I had an out-of-body experience because of her. So I think that, that the genuineness of the, of the script uh, and the way the film, the way the film was made is probably what it is that that uh, that gives it such life. And I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Would you like to expand on your uh, out of body experience? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. I was standing on the set with this eagle. I can't get my hands back far enough to tell you how big she was. She was I mean, she was huge and she's a predator. So to her, I just looked like lunch. Uh, and she didn't like me because birds are very, uh, they, uh, uh, in, they imprint on their owners. Anybody who's owned a, a cockatiel or a, or a parrot knows this, that they're very personal uh, uh, kinds of pets. So she didn't much care for me. And I would have her standing on my arm and uh, the director uh, uh, at the moment would say, you know, uh, Mark, can you, can you sort of not lean away? You look like you're a little afraid of her. And I would say, I'm terrified. What are you talking about? <laughs> she, she hates me. She, she did once uh, go up in the sky about 300 feet and dive down on me and, and hit me with her talons once, which was an interesting experience. She didn't mean anything by it. That's just, that's just how she is. So she was standing on my arm and people were working on the set. They were, pulling cables and they were hammering things and and getting ready for the shot. They were moving big lights and the sunlight was coming on us just at sunset. It was golden hour, what they call golden hour, just as the sun starts to set and everything begins to glow. And she never looked at me in the entire film, which is by the way, what you want from a predator. You don't want a predator to look at you. You just want them to think of you as background. And suddenly she went like that. And I, I was away. 
I, I've jumped out of an airplane once as a graduation stunt with a friend of mine, a director friend, back in college. And it was like that. It was like being thrown out of an airplane. <gasps> and suddenly I saw the universe through her eye. And it was a ruby red spheroidal unending fishbowl. And then I was back and people were still hammering and nailing and pulling cables and doing stuff like that. And she was, she was just like, she had done that like a kind of a gift. It was kind of a gift. And there were experiences on that show that were like that. So there was a great sincerity about it. I was, I was open to that kind of communication and respectful of it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool story. So this is a, a question of my own. On the last episode, you told us that you feel that there still might be some life in the Beastmaster. Have, <laughs> has anything, uh, has there been anything recent? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess, I guess I may have spoken too soon. Oh, oh, wait a minute, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, there is some life in the old Beastmaster yet. Yeah. Yeah, there, there uh, uh I I occasionally hear rumblings from the from the outback, you know. Uh, I never know how much confidence or or faith to put in it, but it's a show that that uh seems to have have good have, have good bones as they say. It was uh, we did three we did three shows all together, three films, uh and then a uh, television series down in Australia. I directed one of those and did uh, an arc, what they call an arc. I, I played six episodes of it as the new young Beastmaster's mentor, uh, some sort of demigod kind of figure. Yeah. So there's okay. more. There's always more. Yeah, I actually went back and watched just the first episode of uh, the third season that you're in, and uh, it was very cool to see you beat the beast master in that first the opening scene that you guys are in together oh okay okay great it's very cool yeah i had i had fun down there australia australia the land where everything will try to kill you the spiders <laughs> the snakes the seashells the sharks the the kites up in the air god help us i don't know how they survived down there <laughs> it was wonderful I had a great time all right the uh, the laser pistol was a huge hit that you showed us in the the our first chat. Uh, a lot of people want to know: Are there any other props that you have from any other sets, or is that something that you have done in the past, or is that just like you know? Did you just really like that pistol, and is that one of the only things that you've taken? I would like to to take one souvenir from every major production. <laughs> Those those totems, those talismans, they 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 carry a kind of significance. I think after a while, they they're almost a a burden. I, I know that I know that it's it's a part of my function to present easily uh, in in public settings like this one. But in actual fact, I'm I'm kind of reclusive, and uh, uh, I don't have posters and pictures of myself on the walls. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there is in the garage, I do have a Mike Donovan from V 
who's a lifelike cutout figure that some that they gave me in the publicity department. And I, I had it for a brief moment. I had it in my house. But every time I would on the lights, I'd forget it was there. And there's this guy with a gun going like that. And I'm oh, God. And then I, oh, my God, it's just me. No, it's just me. I'm okay. So I finally, I put it up in the garage. So, uh, you know, it's, I forget where we were, but I think I scared myself again. Go ahead. Uh, just people wanted to know about your, uh, if you had any other props from any other sets. Oh, oh. Uh, I, uh, the Beastmaster sword, the original Beastmaster sword was stolen. The, the, the deal was the gentleman's agreement was that I would keep that sword after the production because I did all my own stunts. I say all my own stunts. Of course, I didn't do all my own stunts, but I did 90% of them, 95% of them, because I feel that like, again, like my story about John Wayne or Gene Kelly or something like that, you want to participate in that. It's fun, but you also feel that you move in a certain way and there are certain kinds of ways that you're going to express character that you wouldn't want another person, no matter how talented talented a a mimic they are, to do for you. Because there's always going to be something that's more distinctive that you do. So they said just uh just it was the end of the of a long long arduous shoot i mean we 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 filmed 13 days in a row many times it was brutal it was the coldest winter on on record in los angeles don't get me started the crew was wearing parkas and gloves and you know balaclavas and uh, we were standing i was in a dress in a leather hula skirt so uh, it was cold read that any way you want to uh and uh let's see where were we talking oh so they, all we need is the sword for one last shot. And I was, I was blitzed. I said, well, here, just, they just wanted me to throw it in the air so that they could film it twirling through the air. Uh, and, but they weren't going to get to it for another four hours or something. And I was done. It was, it was rap night. And I said, I, I said, just give it to me back again. Tomorrow. I never saw it again. It was gone just like that. So that's one that I wish I still had because it was a beautiful sword made by a man named Vic Anselmo. Uh, whose son is a very sweet guy, and and uh, he and I sometimes have communication uh, about that. But Vic Anselmo made that blade. I likened it to a blade of grass because when you took it out of its sheath, as big as it was, it just flew through the air so easily. It was just a really nice sword. Yeah. Well, how did it get stolen? Is is the end of a movie kind of like the last day of school? Does everything just kind of go haywire and everyone moves on? How did it get stolen? Yeah. Oh, all right. You'll never tell. And I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody, I mean, it, it, it may be out there somewhere. That's all I can say. It's out there somewhere. That sucks. And I don't think anybody else has. Man, that's, that's thanks. All you right. know, it was Rip Torn. He stole the sword. Oh God. <laughs> Rip. Did I, did I tell you? Oh, Rip. Oh my God. I, I love that man. I used to see him at functions. Uh, before he did, did I tell you this story last time? I forget. I'm I, uh, stop me before I kill again, as I say. Oh, yeah. He used to see me at these functions we would go to, people in black tie and stuff like that, you know. And he'd yell across the room, "Hey, singer, singer! It's the only film they'll ever remember me from." <laughs> but that was uh, that's before that's before he did Men in Black and uh, and and other beauties like that, like uh, uh, Dodgeball. How about? Do- you can oh, dodge a wrench. You can dodge a ball. <laughs> I was thinking of. So I was thinking of uh, explaining your life by uh, Einstein. Bob Einstein. Um, I can't think of his. I can't think of his uh, stage name. He was born Bob Einstein. 
He was Super, Super Dave. Dave. Super Dave's brother. He Rip, Rip Torn was Super Dave's brother. No, 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 no. I'm not that old. I, I I actually can separate my my memories one from the other. But uh, I, I'm talking about the '80s, not my '80s. So uh, yeah. So anyway, let's let all that go. Ah, ah, away it goes. Away it goes in the atmosphere, and we're all friends again. Now, just remind me, where am I? Oh boy. I don't even think Casey knows where he is. No. All right. Let's get to another uh, fan question here. Sam Wise Gamgee would like to know about your guest role in the Highlander, the series episode called the mountain men. Mark gives the most insanely entertaining and unforgettable performance as an immortal hillbilly named Caleb Cole. I'd love to know how he came up with that character's voice and what it was like working with Adrian Paul, especially in the epic final battle scene, Highlander versus the Beastmaster. It's one of my favorite film pieces, as a matter of fact. It's funny, you know, you, you think of larger, larger work that you've done and some less significant, but out of them all, there are a few, few times that you remember that, that uh, almost everything that you wanted to accomplish in the storytelling of that one piece came to fruition and came true. And, and uh, uh, that's a real high point. I, I can actually remember uh, the setup and the movements of the cameras and the way the shot was designed uh, at a certain point where I'm divesting myself of my rifle and backpack and stuff like that. And uh, well, what a master of the camera and of the actors he is. Uh, as for the final, as for, as for the final fight, uh, that was a good fight. We we enjoyed ourselves a great deal. But the characterization actually came to me on the airplane flying to Vancouver because I didn't have a clue. I had no clue. I just knew that I wanted to work with Tom. I knew that this was a good script, and uh, you never are sure what level to go in at. Whether it's going to be very subdued and moody because the director and the setting and the, and the production is geared for that, or whether it's going to be, you know, wild and maniacal, but somewhere on the plane, looking at the script. And I remember Adrian Paul was sitting a couple seats across from me, uh, speaking with him about it a little bit and just sort of picking up an intuition and looking at the script and going, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that. So that character actually came to me on the plane en route from Los Angeles to Vancouver. Yeah. And then the director, the direct, we did the first day of filming. And it's a little bit like a guy walking along the edge of a cliff at night uh, in a thunderstorm. And in the morning, he realizes that he, he was standing on the edge of a cliff all this while. Because the next day, I got a call from, from the director, from Tom. And he said, I like the voice. We're going to keep it. Go with that. And I realized that he was making a judgment about it. I thought, oh, sure, this is great. But he had, but when he called me and said, no, that we're going to, we're going to keep that. That was, that's when I felt really comfortable. Yeah. That was going to be my, one of my questions. When you go in there with a voice that you are determined to use for that character. And then what, you know, the director says, that's not what I was thinking at all. There are, it depends on the director. It depends on the story. It depends on the, again, it depends on the architecture, the hierarchy. Uh, one of my favorite pieces uh, again, a small piece, something I did on the Twilight Zone, one of the new uh, incarnations of the Twilight Zone, was a story of a baseball player in our modern day whose career was over. 
and a little girl gives him an antique baseball card. And somehow he transports himself back into the 1920s or, or in the early, early days of baseball profession and becomes that character on the card. And I remember I was playing. He had gotten the reason he got transported was that a, a baseball hit him in the face and he was knocked out. And when he came to, he was back in the past. So I played it with an abdoidal problem from then on. And he was, he was like that. He, he was a, a sad guy, a very wistful and poignant. And the director said, don't do that. He said, that's, that's not Mark Singer. Who is it? I, mean, I was, that's what I was hired to do was to I thought, look, check the contract. You know, that's, that's my name. And so there was a bit of a struggle over that. But in the end, uh, I prevailed and I, and it remains one of my, one of my favorite pieces. And I think he's, I think he acquiesced, acquiesced gracefully and, and uh, he's probably happy about it too. But that happens sometimes you, you struggle back and forth and you have to, you have to be able to, to give in as well. You have to be able to yield and say, okay, we can do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I did um, Beauty and the Beast recently with uh, Stuart Gillard uh, directing. I had mistaken uh, what he had told me in preparation before I got there. And so when I got there, I had this whole characterization worked up and he said, uh, he came to my dressing room. He said, let me see what you're doing. And I did. He said, that's really not where I wanted to go. I wanted to go here. And I said, oh, well, when you said this and this and this, I thought you meant that. He said, no, 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 this other thing. So I said, oh, I changed it over. He said, yeah, that's it. We're doing that. And I had a great time. I had a wonderful time because he's that good a director. He can just come in and take a look and say, no, here's where we're going to make an adjustment. Adjust that. And then I have to be skilled enough to say, I get what you're saying. Yes, that's the right way to go. Let me do that. I was off base. Let me do that. Yep. Yep. You have to be a great actor too, in order to do, to make that switch like that. Cause you're going in thinking one thing and you're set on your, that character's voice that you're going to do. And then they tell you no. So you just have to make that switch right away. And well, I also, you know, I, 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 I appreciate the compliment. I, I'm a, I am skillful enough. I, I I'll say that, but, but he also is a wonderful director. And so he was able to see exactly which button to push and which lever to pull in order to get the message across and, and without any hesitation. So the, the change was easy to make. Yeah. 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 Very cool. All right. So next, uh, next fan statement question here, manic sticks. Thank you so much for a glimpse into Mark Singer's life. Now this is a comment from our last episode. I never comment online, but I was so thoroughly delighted with this talk, I felt that I must. If I would have ever been able to ask a question, I would have pointed out that the Beastmaster released late in 1982. Mark's sister, Lori, was a main character in Footloose that released early in 1984. I would like to know what the family get-togethers were around that time, both siblings being household names. I bet it was pretty special. My sister... I would have to say is a, uh, to, to the degree that any of us can say that, uh, is a, a self-made woman. Uh, she decided that she was going to be in the film industry at a certain point. And within six months to a year, she was a, a regular cast member of the television series Fame. Uh, and then from just skyrocketed from there to uh, the man with one red shoe and uh, the snowman and the falcon 
Uh, and um, uh, what was the, what was the film that he that he mentioned? I can't. Uh, uh, Footloose. Oh, Footloose. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, Footloose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Footloose. Yeah. Oh, Footloose. We come from uh, uh, the same place uh, in some ways uh, uh, about uh, about career and acting. So you know, it, it's easy to speak to her because we we speak the same language. We come from a a family of performers, although they're musicians, classical musicians. Uh, my father's a symphony, was a symphony conductor. My mother, a pianist. My uncle, a pianist. My aunt, a pianist. My uh, brother's a violinist. Lori is a, an, a, a virtuosic cellist. Uh, so, I mean, on the music side, we were we were pretty ready to be on the stage and to be uh, be in this business. So, all of us. I would say when we would get together in those days when uh, when my parents were still alive and all of us would get together, uh, it was a kind of a, a knowing get together. It was kind of a knowing experience that we shared. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I admire her greatly. I have to say, I just admire her greatly and her work. I just am. Uh, there, there are many many findments uh, that I have made in my own uh, in my own technique that uh, uh, that she's been responsible for. Yeah. Have you ever worked together? And if you haven't, do you think you'd be good together or would it be just too weird because it's your sister? It's weird when I work with anybody, but it's, uh, but for her, I would say uh, we would do just, just beautifully. I think I can't see any reason why we wouldn't, you know, I think that would be kind of fun. I think it'd be kind of fun. In fact, I think uh, I haven't even, I, I, I mean, we all, we all consider that kind of thought at one time or another, but, but thinking of it now uh, that we've matured in our work, uh, I think that would that would be probably pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, one of the things that film relies on is a uh, a powerful inner life history. Those good times and traumas that you've been through in life, those things that etch your face and uh, uh, give you a real right to express anything in. Front of something that's as introspective as a camera lens. That's what film. That's what film really relies upon, thrives on, and filmic performances thrive on. So I think the, that the that the more mature the actor or actress is, and the more they've been uh, uh, dedicated to the to the nurturing of that kind of inner history, uh, the more interesting their performances are on film. Now you said that. She's as good as any actress going or actor today, but didn't go the Shakespeare route. She, de- you said she just decided to become an actress and did it. She, she did absolutely, and and uh, you're right uh, to hold my feet to the fire on on that kind of pronouncement. But, and here's my big but, um, is uh, is that um, well, actually, here it is, but but but. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, but actually, unbeknownst to the rest of the world, she is uh, quite an ardent uh, student of Shakespeare. And she and I have shared many long conversations about the Bard and and, uh, and his work. And uh, she herself uh, studies him uh, rigorously. And so while she may not have had the foundation that I did in the beginning, she has augmented her knowledge with profound study of Shakespeare and an interpolation of his methodology the methodology of bringing Shakespeare forward into her own work so you're right uh, but the uh, the thing about acting is that it's never too late sure she took your advice yeah, yeah. went back to Shakespeare 
I saw in, when I was in uh, London uh, once, I saw Peter O'Toole on stage in Pygmalion, Shaw's Pygmalion. And in act three, the curtain rose and there was a little bird-like woman perched on a settee talking to O'Toole. And he had very few words to say. And she was very old. She had a very small voice like this. She must have been in her early 80s at least, but very frail and spoke like this. And the audience, who, who was kind of, which was kind of rustling around after the intermission, was forced to be very quiet. And O'Toole focused on her so intently that he made everybody in the audience focus upon her. And she did her part and she did her thing. And my first thought was, what an incredible athlete. What an extraordinary athlete that woman is to be, a, be up there doing that still and to be able to command an audience. And, uh, and that's, that's what I, that's what I think. Uh, that's some, those are some of the finest uh, and I think most romantically telling moments of, of this industry. You know, you see somebody like that. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Miss Angela would like to know, uh, how did you decide to do the reboot of V? Were you hesitant at all or uh, ready to go? I'm always ready. I'm, I'm ready to answer the bell. The reboot, uh, I was vain enough to imagine that had I been allowed the luxury of a few more episodes, uh, that I might have been able to make some impression upon which way the storylines began to develop. Unfortunately, it was the very last episode of the of the series, and there was nothing I could do beyond introduce myself as a character and then disappear. I, I wish I'd been. I wish this. I, I wish the series had been uh, around for another season. I was. I was hoping, and I hope this is not too vain to say. I was hoping to have a an impact and carry some weight uh, in the storylines going forward. So when that reboot came out, I had an instant reaction of, I don't want to see this. This isn't what I grew up with. I think I assumed you weren't in it. So that's actually news to me. So what did you, did you play your same character or was it kind of a, uh, a what was the role that you played in the V reboot? I think it's a, I, 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 um, I wasn't, I wasn't, I have to say I was uh, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you get involved in a story or a project like that. And you think to yourself, this isn't the way I would have done it. And it's not the role I would have assigned me. But if I, if I can exercise some influence, maybe and bend the storyline around so that it capitalizes on what I brought to the story in its original and therefore imbue this this incarnation with uh, with some of the original's values i was lumbered with a name that i did not identify with nor did i think many people would mike donovan is a great name for the for the role that i played ken johnson kenny johnson the uh, our brilliant auteur uh is the man who dubbed me mike donovan uh, uh i'll always be grateful for that and so uh, instead of capitalizing upon that, I was given a completely new name, one that I didn't identify with, one that I didn't, uh, that, was, that was given no history nor unfolding storyline that I 
that I recognized. Uh, and um, then the series was over. And so there was really very little I could do except do my best. Yeah. It seems like they missed the boat on that one. Why wouldn't they bring Mike Donovan back for V? <laughs> Watch the video, folks. All right. So uh, we have a few more here. Keith Brugman. What's the best memory you can share about your time working with Nick Nolte? In my opinion, nobody can say anything wrong, anything bad about Nick Nolte. And nobody can say anything to denigrate Nick Nolte. I, I have found Nick Nolte to be, first of all, the kindest, sweetest, most considerate of colleagues. He has a generous spirit and a warm heart and a, uh, a delicate touch. And he is humorous and kind. And years after we'd worked together, we met again on the set of Don't Ask Me What, or in between something and another. And uh, his expressions of humanity and warmth and kindness to me, and the immediacy that he brought to uh, to our relationship in the in the moment that we were to, in the moments that we were together, uh, is something that I'll never forget. He was a, he's a wonderful man. He's a wonderful man. Do you have anybody who isn't wonderful? Do you have any people in Hollywood that you do not like? Yes. Everybody who you did that, oh, there we, I do. No, no, I no, no, I, I'm willing to talk about it. I'm not sure that I'll be specific, but yes, there are, there are occasionally you run across people who have either gotten into a product, have gotten off on the wrong foot in the production and they are unable to write themselves because it's difficult sometimes when you come on a set and you go, when you make a, a make some wrong choices in terms of your relationship with your fellows and your colleagues. Uh, it's, it's difficult to right your wrongs and to get your feet in balance. So sometimes the tendency of some people is to just bust their head and go, well, I'm just going to do this for the rest of the shoot. Uh, and that, that sometimes occurs and it's, uh, it's unfortunate. It usually is, uh, is born out of insecurity and stuff like that. But there are, there are, have been occasional moments where, People are just sort of rotten SOBs and you just got to put up with it, you know? And, uh, and for me, uh, see, my, my concern is always, again, it's the architecture, it's the structure, it's the responsibility, it's seeing the thing on through. And for the actors that are difficult to work with, always, I mean, almost without doubt, in my experience, always, it's that they are not working toward the architecture of the production going forward. They're working to tear off a piece for themselves, and that makes them impossible. And it doesn't matter how generous one is in response. It's simply, it's simply absorbed into that safe, that same larger self-absorption that makes them uh, so difficult uh, to be around. Yeah. I got to ask, when you go onto a set, like you you did some guest spots on, you did Arrow more recently, the show Arrow. Uh, when you go onto a set, yeah. is, like, is it like, holy shit, the Beastmaster's here? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to assume that you're treated like a king around a set like that. 
I, I, I sometimes am, but, uh, uh, and, and, and most often am, uh, but you know, it, that's only currency for so long and it's only worth so much. It values quickly if you can't do the work. Sure. And so what really proves and approves uh, the friendship and the respect is, uh, is, is if I can do the job and do the job well and make a good contribution. So it is nice to be recognized. And it took me a long time to realize that I had a responsibility toward that recognition uh, as opposed to a kind of a shying away from it. I, I don't like to get lost in an identity. But on the other hand, one has to be uh, responsive uh, to the impact uh, of that identity on others, on yourself, and acknowledge that and acknowledge it in a positive way that makes everybody feel this is a good thing. So let's move forward with this. So yeah, if people treat me well on the set, and, I, and it's, it's true, they mostly do, I accept it in the spirit that it's offered and I rejoice in it. And uh, I hope I don't bore them with too many gray beard stories, you know? <laughs> well, I can, I can honestly say, I mean, you are one of those people and I'm not just trying to blow smoke. Uh, you just, there's something about you and what you left in a lot of our imaginations. I talk about you all the time and people are like, I absolutely know who that is. And, and your legacy is still going. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I, it's we're we're, I met, um, I've met so many actors of great stature who share with me that they, that they have the same insecurities as any beginning actor might have. Yeah. It's, it's, I I appreciate that. Thanks. It's anyway, there we go. It's, it's, that's what it is, is what it is. There we are. And we're smiling and we're all going to our happy place. I have to add on to that in our little intro. I told this, to bill whenever like my girlfriend or someone is giving me shit i'll always say look do you know anybody else that has the beastmaster's phone number i don't think so (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 we we love you man so we don't i mean we've two hours here it's been great so uh just to wrap up i have one last question i saw on your imdb page it says that Currently in post-production, you're in a film called The Undertaker's Wife. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about that? Uh, I tell you that uh, it was a uh, it's it's uh, it would be it would be classified as a cameo. Uh, I play a sheriff in a small town uh, where the Undertaker and the Undertaker's wife uh, and child, who run the only mortuary in the surrounding vicinity are up to nefarious deeds. And uh, the, the nice thing about this, uh, about this film, uh, I think, is that, the, uh, is that the director has created a, a kind of a hum of tension and uh, uh, subterfuge in the air, uh, wherein each of the characters, even within the family of the undertaker and the undertaker's wife and their son, is that there's always an undercurrent of something else going on that's odd uh, and murders take place. And the sheriff has an agenda of his own. And it's, uh, I mean, look at, I mean, it, it puts that kind of, it puts that kind of mask on the, on the, on the situation. I had a lot of fun. Uh, and it's, uh, and I tell you, I like making films in California. I do. I don't, I like going on, on location because it's always different and authentic. 
but it's it's nice to be in the cradle of the film industry and make and make films here. Here's the most important question, though: Did you get points on the back end? <laughs> I'm learning. Yeah, I did. Hey, I'll, I'll show you. <laughs> Watch the video, folks. <laughs> no, man, you threw me off there. I don't remember what I was going to say now. <laughs> Mark, this has been great, man. A lot of people wanted to know, are you doing any appearances, uh, any type of Comic-Cons? I know a lot of that stuff got canceled. I've been very cautious about that kind of stuff for two reasons. I'm less concerned about my own health. I've had, I've been vaccinated and uh, I'm looking to take my booster when it, when it becomes approved. Mm, boy, this is, you know, this, you ask some tough questions. I don't think this is the time for people to be clustering. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I, I question my own involvement in that kind of thing at this moment. Uh, and that's why I sort of, uh, am, am, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit cloistered at home right now. What surprises me about vaccinations is that when I was a child, polio stalked the land. And one of my young friends died of polio in an iron lung because there was no vaccine died the agonies that his parents went through and the agonies that he went through were because of a virus and people were regularly crippled by this virus and when jonas salk invented the salk vaccine every child in the in the city of corpus christi was bussed to the center of town and we lined up by, by schools and they shot us full of this they, needles. Those days were that long. And consequently, there is no polio. So people that, uh, that are questioning the, the value of vaccinations are people who have forgotten or never experienced uh, what something like polio can do. Uh, and uh, I, I feel compelled to say that. I, I, say, I say that on behalf of all the people who were crippled by polio and all the, all the people who were killed by it. Yeah, the internet has so many joys, so many great things, so many values, but there's a bad side of it. A lot of misinformation, a lot of the things that I hear people, I, I have a friend who actually works at Merck, he's a vaccine scientist, and he's just like, most of it's wrong, most of it's inaccurate. It, it's, a, it's a tough time right now. Yep, yep. Mark, I know you don't do a lot of social media, if any social media, right? That's right. That's right. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working in the mastering the ignition in my car and uh i've got i know you're supposed to turn it to the right so well we feel privileged that uh, you speak with us on occasion we love to have you man thank you so much for taking the time to do this i appreciate it i always enjoy talking with you guys it's always uh, uh it's always a surprise to me and always a pleasant one i do i, I have to admit thanks well, we'll we'll definitely be reaching out to you again so we're we're going to believe you really mean that. <laughs> we're going to reach yeah. out and talk to you, you can, some more later. You can do that with confidence. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, guys. Okay. Do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah. See this thing that uh, I printed up a moment ago? This is uh, – wait a minute. I'll find the title page. Uh, this is uh, – this actually is – this actually is – I was printing up because when I was – Thinking about talking with you guys, realized that I couldn't actually find a copy of my book, The System, 
how to act Shakespeare. And uh, that's what I was printing up so that I could show you. But I think it's an important book. And I don't know how to self-publish. I'm not, as you said, as you pointed out a moment ago, uh, uh, media savvy. And I'm thinking about blogging, but I'm not quite sure how to work that either. But I think this this book, which is written from, for actors, this is written for actors, is an important contribution to the scholarship that prefaces every Shakespeare play in every anthology or every single volume, because Shakespeare, as, as wonderful as it is, as he is to read, and as important as he is to read, is meant for these people to act, is meant to be acted. And when you act Shakespeare, you find things revealed to you by the proper course, by the proper methodology that can't be found by scholars, because scholars can't act. And acting is what Shakespeare is about. It's like trying to, it's like, no matter what you know about baseball, all the history of it, all the strategy of it, all of the gossip of it, all of the everything of it. If you're not a, a professional baseball player, you can't understand baseball in the way that baseball is understood when you're on the field. And that's where baseball really exists. And so the same thing is true with acting. And the same thing is true, is especially true with Shakespeare. I think that this, this how-to book, because that's what it is, it's a how-to pamphlet. I think that should be included in every Shakespeare uh, volume sold. I really do. I think it's that important. Well, you're in luck because you got some people here who know how to do the self-publishing stuff, and that's that's my industry. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I, I help you get that stuff out there. Please, let's do. And I'll, I'll uh, I'm not gonna print one for you, but I'll I'll send it to you in the email. Okay. <laughs> well, I could no wait. You know, I could send you this one. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Hey. Anyway, thanks guys very much. I'm, I'm 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 honored to have been with you again. It's always fun. Thank you, Mark. Our pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please head over to the Den Dot Show and subscribe to the other great shows on the Deluxe Edition Network.